You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session. First, I'm sick. I've been sick for the last few days. But that doesn't stop me from being here in Plenary Session HQ to record this episode. This episode, you're in for a real treat. You've got a lot of things coming at you. First, I'm going to talk a bit about two recent clinical trials in lymphoma. I'm going to try to put these in context in the lymphoma landscape. Next, I have an interview with Dr. Amit Sarpatwari. And Dr. Sarpatwari is a lawyer and an epidemiologist who works in the Harvard Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law. He is a scholar in regulatory matters, and there's no one more knowledgeable on issues of the Orphan Drug Act and REMS, which are two topics we're going to be talking about today, in addition to the big topic, which is what is the role and what is the purpose of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, do us a favor and recommend it to a friend. Plenary Session wants to grow its audience, and the best way to do so is to get a personal recommendation from someone you know or trust. So recommend it to someone and have them check out an episode. Also, consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com allows you to support artists or podcasts that you appreciate. And if you like this podcast, that's a great way to show your support. Finally, if you haven't yet gone onto the iTunes store and written us a review, we greatly appreciate it. Tell us what you think about this podcast and give us five stars if we've earned it. All right, lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or large cell lymphoma, is a classic disease to know about in oncology. It has a rich history, goes back many decades, through early success with combination chemotherapy, the regimen CHOP, which gained prominence in the 1960s, of cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, oncovin, and prednisone. And then from CHOP until the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was really no advance at all in, on, in large cell lymphoma until the advent of rituximab, which showed in one of what ultimately became several clinical trials that the addition of rituximab to CHOP improved outcomes, including all-cause mortality in large cell lymphoma quite convincingly. Large cell lymphoma is a fascinating history of oncology because, one, in many ways it represents the promise of oncology active individual cytotoxic drugs collectively were able to eradicate the disease and achieve long, durable, event-free or progression-free survival benefits. There was a fraction of patients in whom the disease could be eradicated, in whom it did not return, which is really the promise of combination cytotoxic therapy that was fulfilled, I think, in Hodgkin's lymphoma and in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and some non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and which was fulfilled in testicular cancer. And the idea that a similar mentality would apply to many other tumor types was very seductive, but ultimately found to not be the case, to be a bit too optimistic. Of course, one very important episode in large cell lymphoma occurred in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, which was the idea that multidrug combination chemotherapy beyond CHOP could improve upon outcomes achieved by CHOP. CHOP, of course, had overall survival of around 50%, EFS, about 60% at this time, and novel anti-cancer regimens such as Promacytobom, Mbacod, other multi-combination chemotherapy strategies were pursued. In uncontrolled phase two trials conducted at the most venerable institutions, such as the National Cancer Institute, these regimens had stellar results with EFS 
much higher than what was achieved historically with CHOP. And then finally, in 1993, in the New England Journal of Medicine, in the seminal Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group trial led by Rick Fisher and colleagues, we saw what happens when you go head-to-head against CHOP. Drugs where historically controlled data was quite favorable, failed to improve time-to-treatment failure, and failed to improve OS against CHOP, and did so at the price of added toxicity. And thus, they fell out of favor. They were a misstep in biomedicine. There was something that we don't talk quite enough about. Drugs that had been pursued in uncontrolled single-center experiences turned out not to work as well in randomized fashion. That was the seminal lesson from the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study. And it and was done at a time where this was truly quite provocative. This is the early 1990s. We had only seen a few examples of pathophysiology being contradicted by large-scale randomized trials. We had just seen the CAS study in the New England Journal of Medicine. We just saw promecytobam um, failing to improve outcomes over CHOP. I think this was the era in which evidence-based medicine, which had not yet earned that moniker, uh, really gained prominence for its ability to sort of put on its head all prior evidence uh, through well-done, well-conducted, multi-center randomized trials, as this study was. The Fisher et al. study included over 1,200 patients, which at the time, uh, and even to today, remains a, a truly remarkable feat. So enter two recent studies, the long-awaited CLGB5303 study, which compares dose-adjusted R-EPOC against R-CHOP in frontline DLBCL, the Alliance CLGB study. This was the study that was meant to confirm the superiority of DAR-EPOC, um, which now we know failed to do any such thing. We also see out in the Lancet Oncology, Remodel B, which is the randomized control trial of bortezomib added to RCHOP for DLBCL, a phase three study which was supposed to show benefit in a molecular subgroup of the disease, failing to show benefit in either the activated B cell or germinal center B cell phenotype of DLBCL. What do you need to know? Well, you should know that just like promecytobam before it, the National Cancer Institute investigators developed a novel regimen called DAR-EPOC. This had a wealth of preclinical data to show that the prolonged infusional exposure to these agents actually reduced cardiac toxicity and improved um, cell kill for uh, lymphoma cells. Um, what was also quite provocative was DAR-EPOC was supported not only by single-center experience of PFS that was quite impressive, but even multi-center confirmatory CLGB uncontrolled studies that showed a five-year a PFS rate of 81%, which was similar to the 85% achieved at the NCI and superior to what we thought we would get out of CHOP. And so it appeared to be the case that DAR EPOC would be the preferred treatment of choice. And thus, the multicenter randomized control trial, the Alliance study, was run. This was a study that randomized over 260 participants to R CHOP and DAR EPOC, respectively. And unfortunately, after allowing plenty of time to accrue events, perhaps more time than, than what they thought they would, they find absolutely no difference in PFS, absolutely no difference in OS. EPOC, of course, is more cumbersome. It's not easy to administer. It requires an IV pump or hospitalization. It requires drug dosing to neutrophil nadir, uh, which is another level of provider burden and another level of complexity. And it failed to show improve outcomes in any in any uh, in any group here. One of the provocative findings that came out of the Alliance study is that in the subgroup of patients with PMBL lymphoma, primary mediastinal B cell lymphoma, which is a unique um, tumor type, both in gene expression profiling as well as in clinical behavior, 
DAR Epoch and R-CHOP, in the absence of radiation, really seemed to be not that dissimilar. Only 3 of 20 patients treated with R-CHOP and 2 of 15 patients treated with DAR Epoch had um, progression events, PFS events. Why is this noteworthy? Well, one of the ways in which Epoch-R has gained um, use is through uncontrolled studies in even rarer, unique subgroups of lymphoma. One of those subgroups is PMBL, where a New England Journal of Medicine study shows really remarkable PFS from DAR Epoch in the absence of radiation given to the mediastinum. Now, of course, this is a disease that often affects women of younger age who have a lot of years in front of them, and minimizing radiation exposure, particularly to the mediastinum with its known secondary malignancy risk of breast cancer, with its known acceleration of atherosclerosis now, from a cardiac standpoint, that's a good thing. And we really didn't have good evidence that you could safely omit radiation with RCHOP routinely in this rare group. But we did for dose-adjusted R-EPOC that they had quite good outcomes. Now you see some hint that perhaps it isn't the DAR epoch that is really doing the hard work in PMBL, but rather that any anthracycline-containing regimen, R-CHOP or DAR epoch they both would do well without radiation. Of course, this study is not designed or powered to render the final verdict on that, but it does raise that provocative question. The study also failed to show any benefit of DAR epoch in the double expressor phenotype lymphoma. Um, double expressor phenotype lymphoma, of course, uh, varies from pathology lab to pathology lab. What exactly counts as double expression varies, um, and it's, I think, reassuring to know that there is actually probably no benefit to going to DAR epoch there. You don't have to do that. I think, of course, people in the wake of this study will continue to debate whether or not DAR epoch has a role in double hit lymphoma. Of course, this study is not designed or suited or powered to answer that question, but I do think it raises the provocative idea that we ought to answer that question. I think that could be settled with a multi-center consortium effort to put patients with double hit lymphoma on such a randomized trial. Many providers use uncontrolled experience to switch to DAR epoch in those settings of double hit or MIC rearranged lymphoma. They have, I think, a reasonable basis to do so based on the uncontrolled studies. But of course, I think the lesson here in the CIGB study is the same lesson from Rick Fisher and colleagues in 1993, which is when it comes to lymphoma, you cannot trust uncontrolled studies. You need randomized studies or you need to get out of here. Um, in fact, people who are continue to conduct uncontrolled studies should really ask themselves why they are taking the scarcest resource there is out there, which is patients, and using them for a study that is unable to ill-suited to, cannot provide any useful information for the oncology community and for patients like them. I think the study, the CLGB 5303 study, should be a final reminder that we don't need uncontrolled studies in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Now, enter the Remodel B study. The Remodel B study used a unique design. They allowed everyone to get one cycle of R-CHOP while they spent their time looking for cell of origin. Now, of course, cell of origin uses gene expression profiling to decide whether or not a cell is more likely to be an activated B-cell phenotype or germinal center B-cell phenotype. Now, this is work that goes back to the NCI and the work of Dr. Stout and colleagues, which I think first appeared in Nature 1999 or 2000. We're now 20 years later into this categorization, and although there has been tremendous enthusiasm for this categorization, I think this study and the collective body of studies suggest that you've had 20 years to prove that separating the cancer in this way is useful, and you have not yet proven that. Because here again, the additional bortezomib to RCHOP failed to improve outcomes in both the ABC and the GCB phenotype. 
And in fact, to my knowledge, there has not yet ever been a drug which has been tested in randomized fashion that works in the ABC DLBCL, but does not work in the GCB DLBCL or vice versa. Now there's an old quote by Plato that says the purpose of science is to carve nature at its joints. And that means that the categories we use in science in order to have meaning have to delineate groups that benefit from some intervention versus groups that don't, groups that behave one way versus groups that don't. That's what it means to carve nature at its joints. One wonders that although gene expression profiling is seductive, although it is alluring, although it is the quote-unquote promise of precision oncology and DLBCL, that until you find some agents that preferentially work in some GEP categories and not in others, perhaps you have not carved nature at its joints, but rather shattered the femur in the middle of the bone. And that's what one wonders here. I think this trial... It shows a few things quite interestingly. One, 26% of patients had ABC type, 51% had GCB. They used the gene expression profiling as a stratification factor, i.e. they randomized equally within that group. However, this study shows that you probably don't really need to do that. You can just randomize large cell lymphoma patients. You know by chance and through the power of randomization that on average you're going to get about roughly equal ABC and GCB. You don't need to know that information before you randomize. You're just wasting your time. Here they tried not to waste the time by giving one cycle of RCHOP while they waited, but they're still wasting their time nonetheless. This study is, of course, stone-cold negative. Um, but, you know, never let that stop an author from slipping in a sentence like this. The RB-CHOP group had a slight excess of vincristine dose reductions compared to the R-CHOP group, which could potentially have eroded a positive effect from the bortezomib. Oh, uh, well, thank you for that spin. But, of course, it was likely the case that they had the Oncovin reduced because of the neuropathy caused by your experimental agent, and thus one would not have kept the vincristine higher, and thus one could not have ever seen whatever magical positive effect of bortezomib you believe still exists, when, in fact, the study clearly shows that none in fact exists. Never let negative results get in the way of continuing to claim that your intervention might have worked. What could have happened if, which is the essential chant of people who are trying vigorously not to look at what the data they've generated just said. What do I think? On Twitter, there was a vigorous debate, which was that, you know, one of the challenges in both these studies is that the sickest of the sickest DLBCL patients might not have been able to be enrolled in one of these studies. Perhaps they had an Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group performance status that precluded their ability from going on the Remodel B study. Perhaps they were so sick that nobody wanted to wait before giving some treatment, such as might have what happened in the CLGB study. And had we been able to include the worst of the worst, you would have seen a benefit, as you see with this, you know, subgroup analysis for IPI, which they are clearly putting too much stock in in the EPOC study because it's, it's, it, 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 it's largely overlapping uh, confidence intervals and there's really not enough of a signal there to hang your hat on. Nevertheless, what do I think we should say here? One, we need a large, pragmatic, randomized controlled trials in the lymphoma space. What does that mean? That means among patients with Burkitt's lymphoma, we need a randomized study. We need to know under what conditions is Codox MIVAC superior to dose-adjusted R epoch. We need to know that in some context, we need to know have some comparison in Burkitt's lymphoma. In high-grade B-cell lymphoma, again, we need some randomized study. In diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, in the double-hit lymphoma group, which is most consistently seen as a prognostic group, we need randomized control trials to show the superiority of epoch versus another regimen versus CHOP, because perhaps Although the prognosis is quite poor, perhaps you are truly unable to improve that prognosis with different regimens, and that would be quite important to know for patients. 
we need a randomized controlled trial of DLBCL where patients are randomized the moment the doctor decides to treat the patient between different treatment protocols. If people want to believe that ABC and GCB phenotype will someday magically allow you to carve nature at its joints and find some differences um, between the groups in terms of what agents are efficacious, then I think they should do what the remodel investigators did, which was allow one cycle of RCHOP and then allow the randomization. That makes sense to me. You might want to use it as a stratification factor, but you probably don't. They're both subgroups that are seen frequently enough that you probably, in a large randomized trial, don't have to stratify based on it, and you still will probably get equal numbers in all those groups, and you could look at it post-hoc. Uncontrolled studies in DLBCL uh, should no longer be performed. They have no clinical utility. They don't tell us anything we need to know. We need randomized controlled trials done in large cell lymphoma. We need to think creatively on how to create broad consortia-based groups so we can achieve these trials in Burkitt's lymphoma, in hybrid B-cell lymphoma, in PMBL. We need to know if you really can just get away with RCHOP, no RT, using the same post-therapy PET surveillance schedule as was used by Dunleavy and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine paper. Perhaps you can safely give RCHOP and safely omit RT, and therefore you have all of the efficacy of DR EPOC and PMBL with none of the cumbersomeness and none of the logistic hassles of DAR EPOC. Finally, we need randomized control trials in primary CNS lymphoma, but that's another story. What is the lesson here across all these papers across this history of lymphoma? Lymphoma is, you know, such a fascinating cancer from an oncologic history. It was a cancer where we clearly had success. And those successes are the addition of rituximab, and those successes are the creation of CHOP. But just as there is success, there have been large groups that are powerful that think that giving RCHOP on a 14-day schedule instead of 21 days is beneficial, that think promacitabom is going to be CHOP, that think dose-adjusted REPOC is going to be better than RCHOP because, after all, you personalize, you customize drug dosing based on neutrophil nadirs, person by person. It is pharmacokinetically guided therapy. Well, we see here yet again that all of these hypotheses, although seductive, although plausible, although bolstered by a wealth of basic science data, fail in randomized testing. Why does this happen? One, I think human beings are an optimistic species and we forever think we can improve upon the past. And unless someone impartial and objective forces us to prove that we're improving in controlled fashion, we may continue to believe that even though it's untrue. Two, when one has a fervent belief, one can get basic science data, preclinical data, laboratory data to confirm that hypothesis, no matter what that hypothesis is. If you think adding venetoclax will improve outcomes, I can get you some preclinical data that shows us that's going to be true. If you think adding ibrutinib can improve outcomes, I can get you that data. It just takes a few different small underpowered uh, you know, mouse studies, and you're eventually going to get the success that you want, which will validate you for doing what you think you should be doing. But the only way to know for sure is large, well-done phase three studies, which we see here. I think people who think lymphoma is something special and that we can't do pragmatic clinical trials uh, at the point of care are, um, are doing us a disservice. Every time you make a decision in the clinic is a potential opportunity for a randomized control trial. If we can achieve a large registry-based randomized control trial system, that might be the greatest advance in cancer medicine of all times because the power of randomization to answer clinically important questions is a key tool that applies across every single cancer. Many years ago, somebody asked me, what was the greatest advance in medicine in the 20th century? And my answer was, 
the randomized control trial. Although there have been stellar successes with antibiotics, with insulin, with imatinib in cancer medicine, and many other stellar successes for which the magnitude of benefit was so great that randomization was likely not needed. Randomization is the one tool that allows you to separate your hope, your belief, your optimism from the truth when it comes to effects of a modest to marginal effect size that offer putative benefit. So randomized trials are not meant to tell you if benzene is a carcinogen, nor are they meant to tell you if pulling a man out of the way of a moving bus saved his life. That's not what they're for. They're not for huge effect sizes, and they're not for harms testing. They're for interventions you believe offers at best a modest to marginal effect size and you need to separate your faith in that belief the bias that comes from uncontrolled historical studies from the truth of whether or not that interventions offers that belief and the only thing in modern medicine that will allow you to separate those two is randomized control trials and you can keep trying to reinvent the wheel and seek your synthetic control arms or whatever you want to seek but the truth comes back to the greatest advance going forward will be someone who comes along and decides to make this cheap, easy, and feasible to conduct randomized control trials at the point of care every time a key decision is made, when that decision is frequently made by many people, and when there are at least two options that are frequently employed. So, it's good to see these studies out there, and it's good to know that if you're out there right now recruiting for your uncontrolled study of the initial therapy of DLBCL, and your clinical trial says we are powered to detect a three-year EFS of 92%, it's good to know that you should stop your study right now and start running a randomized control trial, a randomized phase two study, because that's the only thing we need in large cell lymphoma. So, on that positive note, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Amit Sarpatwari, who is an expert in regulatory policy. You won't want to miss this. There's few people I think more highly of than Dr. Sarpatwari. Okay, I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Amit Sarpatwari. Dr. Sarpatwari is both a PhD doctor in epidemiology, as well as a lawyer, and he is a part of the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law, the Portal Group at Harvard Medical School. Um, as a bit of background, Dr. Sarpatwari did his undergraduate at the University of Virginia. He went on to do his PhD work in epidemiology at the University of Cambridge. He crossed the pond. He came back to this side of the pond to go to law school at the University of Maryland, where he had an interest in regulatory policy. And since then, he's been in the Portal Medical Group, which is the finest group doing work in regulatory policy. Second only to the group in Oregon. Second best. No, okay, maybe the best, maybe the best. Well, Dr. Sarpatuari, it's a pleasure to have you here on Plenary Session. Thanks so much, Vinay, for having me. And uh, I think you're a little, oh, you're a little generous, but uh, we'll take it. So we'll thanks. take it, yeah. <laughs> so, it's, um, it's been a while since we've last spoken. And, uh, but it's your first time here on the plenary session stage. Uh, I told you you'll be giving the plenary session today. Um, this is probably, does this exceed your expectations or meet your expectations to be here face-to-face on Skype? I think it definitely meets my expectations. I've, I've, uh, I've followed you, as you know, closely on Twitter, and uh, I appreciate the way that you uh, take a skeptical view of health policy and of medicine in general and uh, having the ability to uh, discuss some ideas and reach a lot of people who are interested in these subjects is uh, is definitely a great opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. Let's jump right in. You were doing your training in epidemiology. When did you get interested in policy? 
I've, I, since my undergraduate days, even in high school, I was interested in policy, but uh, I, I really knew I wanted to focus on public health, was fascinated by epidemiology, thought that would be a, a good inroad. And a lot of my work was on autoimmune epidemiology, and I, I really enjoyed it. But I had to ask myself, what would I do for the next 20 years and what would be the most meaningful work I could do? And I really wanted to help translate um, some work while also being a health policy researcher. And so coupled uh, with my epidemiology background, I felt that law school would open up the most doors. And I think generally speaking, there aren't too many uh, uh, JD, uh, PhD epidemiologists. And uh, I think there's definitely a, a room for some more because there's uh, the, the way in which laws and regulations intersect with uh, issues in medicine um, is dramatic. And I think that there is a lot of potentially low-hanging fruit in terms of what we can do to improve population health. So somebody with your background who has a law degree background in epidemiology, you would be ideal slated to do IP law. Um, but why did you turn down IP law, a path in IP law, for the uh, more lucrative job, obviously, as an academic professor? <laughs> Uh, the it was definitely not the money I can tell you that um, it was uh, really the idea of going somewhere and doing something where I felt like it could have the biggest impact and uh, although I we deal with plenty of IP issues sort of litigating patents and spending all day sort of reviewing the intricacies of, of different inventions wasn't uh, my cup of tea much uh, appreciation for those who who do do it and they're definitely needed but for me I really wanted to be in a place where I could do research on policy and also help inform policy making I think you found a good fit so recently you and Dr. Kerfman wrote the editorial entitled Mitigating Health Risks of Prescription Drugs, Lessons from FDA Oversight of Opioid Products. Now this was the editorial to a paired paper that talked about something called REMS, the Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy System. Can you tell listeners what is REMS, why should they care about it, how is it being hijacked, how is it working well, you know, what do we need to know about REMS? Sure. REMS stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies, and really what they are are safety programs. And why they're needed is, well, we can look back in health policy in, in the wake of a series of safety scandals, uh, Vioxx comes to mind, what was uh, flagged and what was noticed by uh, many people was that FDA didn't really have great authority in the post-approval space. So once a drug is approved, what are the powers of the FDA? So in theory, they have the option of uh, pulling the drug from the market, but that's a very difficult thing to do um, and is a very complicated thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so now, can we, for drugs that have special safety risks, um, can we impose certain conditions or create a safety program to ensure that the way in which they're used, the benefits outweigh the risks. And mm -hmm. that's essentially what a REMS is. So for any new drug or even for existing drugs, the FDA since 2007 mm -hmm. has had the ability to impose a REMS on those drugs. Mm -hmm. And that can entail anything from simply a medication guide to inform physicians about the risks of, of the product and the way in which it can be administered safely and it can range all the way to what we call elements to assure safe use. And that can be person 
uh, place and time restrictions on dispensing, mandating that physicians and pharmacies undergo training and be certified, and uh, requiring that patients be enrolled in a registry in which outcomes can be tracked. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of flexibility in terms of what FDA can require for these drugs that require REMS. Now, FDA has actually imposed REMS uh, not infrequently. So as of January of this year, there were 77 REMS and 49 had these elements to research safe use which are restricted usually to those drugs that pose the greatest safety risks. And what percent so of all... So I think it's important to step back and also sort of realize... I was just going to ask, yeah. what percent of all new molecular entities get REMS? Is it something like, it's like one in five or something like that? Probably more like one in ten. One in ten, um, okay. Yeah. In terms of the, the REMS that are more meaningful. Okay, um, okay. But I think something that I'm sure you guys have talked on this podcast before, the context of all of this is we're in a state in which drugs are being approved faster, in which they're being approved on a more limited evidence. Hallelujah. And, and so the potential need and importance for REMS is, is great. greater. Mm -hmm. And but what we have is very limited evidence about how well they work. So in 2013, so now this is already what six years ago, the uh, Office of the Inspector General uh, at at HHS said that uh, FDA has really no real good means of uh, knowing whether or not REMS are working mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. And we are, it, there's been limited studies on um, REMS in certain cases where the REMS has either been approved after uh, a drug has already been on the market or that the REMS has been taken off and felt like it was no longer needed or we have a convenient pre-post that we can analyze. And in those cases, we see sort of mixed effects as to how well these programs function. But how, do you, this, how uh, do you judge yeah. how well they work? What's the end point you care about? Sure, and that's a great uh, question. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you can sort of view it as surrogate endpoints and, and hard endpoints. And the hard endpoint is, is it deterring the actual or reducing or limiting the safety risk that it, the program exists to be there for? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, in the case of safe use of transmucosal immediate relief fentanyl or turf uh, products, it, we're worried about uh, exposure to, uh, to non-tolerant um, individuals and we're worried about you know, diversion and issues like that off-label use but those are really proxies for ultimately we're worried about people developing uh, substance use disorders uh, we're worried about hard endpoints like opiate overdose death yes um, and so when it comes time to there's a there's a bit of a struggle in terms of actually trying to figure out well what can we measure uh, using the data that we have and uh, what are the outcomes that matter? And so uh, let's just take another big class of REMS, which are um, REMS for teratogens. And so oftentimes those REMS, like the classic example Lindley is isotretinoin. Yeah, or retinoic acid. Retinoic acid, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so in those cases, what you want to do is make sure that women of a reproductive age are taking oftentimes two forms of contraception. And so what you could do, is the REMS working? Well, yeah. can we actually measure whether or not they're taking two forms of contraception or not? Uh, but more importantly, 
how many pregnancies actually result with people who are taking these drugs and what are the outcomes of those pregnancies. So all of that is to say is it's not an easy question and it's not an easy position FDA is tasked with to to administer these programs. But uh, this study revealed some troubling findings. And so when we're talking about this TERF-REMS program, what it required is assigned acknowledgement of the drug risks and training for physicians and pharmacies. Um, and uh, what we know is that the opiate crisis has sort of continued unabated, um, including we're about to see a verdict probably in the INSYS trial, um, which covers uh, you know a, a TERF uh, product. Um, but this group at Hopkins, what they did is they knew that there were documents at the FDA about how well this program was working mm-hmm. or what sort of evidence were. And how they knew this is manufacturers are required under the REMS program to do these assessments. Um, and these assessments at certain time intervals. And the FDA sometimes does their own uh, investigation of, of performance under the REMS. And they fought. Uh, a prolonged sort of five-year battle to secure these documents, which were claimed as proprietary uh, by the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And they were ultimately able to to get them. And what it showed was that there was evidence of extensive off-label prescribing, um, that 35 to 54% of patients prescribed TERFs were opioid non-tolerant, and that 119 of 302 physician respondents to a survey reported prescribing TERFs for chronic non-cancer pain. And so if the whole purpose of this is to limit prescribing to the indication and to prevent a potential prescribing that wouldn't be A, efficacious, but B, would also raise significant risks of uh, inducing uh, substance use disorders, there were red flags all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the problem here is nothing was really done despite this evidence. And so it speaks to the fact that uh, we have a big problem when it comes to the post-approval space and we can talk about uh, other areas in which yeah. they, these problems occur. But uh, what can we do to, to make these REMS programs better? I think first, one of the, the biggest issues is that we need greater transparency. FDA is 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 going to do its job and going to do probably the best job that it can, but there's going to be situations in which it it drops the ball, frankly. And where how do we how do we identify what those issues are? The only way to identify that is to have as much information about these programs and how they operate um, and reports that manufacturers submit be transparent. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be that evidence for independent uh, assessors. assessment, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes academics to, uh, to evaluate the program. Um, and that's something that really is, is lacking here. So first thing we suggested is the assessments for these programs need to be accessible. accessible. Mm-hmm. The second thing that is the way these programs are run, there's a conflict of interest inherently in them. So these programs are run by the manufacturers. Oftentimes they delegate uh, a chosen party to administer the program. 
but uh, they are also created largely by the manufacturers with input from the FDA, and we feel like it should really be the reverse. It should be FDA that is designing these programs with some input from the manufacturers, and that they should be run by independent third parties. Um, and that would be a better way to steward the public's health. And because just to be clear, the manufacturer in this case in particular, um, they have a financial incentive for the REMS not to work. Because the more the REMS doesn't work and the drug is prescribed widely, the patch is used widely, the more money they make, bottom line. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And you saw this. I mean, it, there was a nice study that uh, that came out jointly by the FDA and Joe Ross's group at Yale um, that showed in JAMA Network Open uh, really what was driving some of this uh, increase in off-label use, and a lot of it was subsist. Mm. And, uh, you know, there is an inherent uh, financial conflict of interest, um, and we would do well to sort of avoid that, that risk of... You're uh, saying of make- robust regulatory systems do not require participants to police themselves, generally. <laughs> I'm saying that if they... Well, you know, quite frankly, if you're going to have effective systems, you want to limit the amount of self-policing that exists. And uh, if you're going to go to the extent of having self-policing, you need to make sure there's robust audits, uh, independent uh, robust audits. Um, And uh, we've seen this time and again, not only in the drug space, but we see this now with Boeing and airplanes. I mean, you don't want uh, self-regulation when the uh, what's at stake is so great and yes admittedly that is a public debate and as a debate about trade-offs and efficiency um, but at the end of the day if there's one lesson from the FDA it's that we learn repeatedly from tragedies that occur and it's sort of like this back and forth pendulum swing of uh, lax regulation leading to more robust regulation and then a perception that that robust regulation isn't needed um lax regulation leads to profit which is good and then there's a tragedy unfortunately and then we have more regulation which stifles profit and stifles innovation Yes, exactly. And so uh, I think one of the other things, uh, the the sort of third recommendation that was made is that the FDA needs to be more assertive in requesting certain information be collected by manufacturers. And here the FDA sort of says it's in a tight spot because it says it can request that certain information be provided, but it can't demand it. That might require a congressional fix. But it also speaks to FDA in this day and age where post-1992, we're talking about an FDA that's largely funded by the industry. And so when you leave matters of discretion to the agency, who is their master becomes a relevant question. And oftentimes their master is two different distinct parties, the public and the pharmaceutical industry. Who they increasingly call their client and who increasingly funds them and who they increasingly seek to please. I mean, it is a problem, as you say. Who is the master to the FDA? It is the public. It ought to be, at least. Agreed. And uh, some form of rebalancing there is necessary, but when you have uh, a, a regulatory body that is largely funded by that industry, there's going to be the temptation to see them as a client and if that's the case, then Congress sort of has an obligation to leave, to, to, in my opinion, to make matters less 
discretionary for the regulatory body. But of course, we can talk about how uh, oh, the capture of Congress by, yeah. by industry. But um, but but in that sense, we we need to make sure that. Uh, FDA takes an aggressive approach in the post-market space. And this is going to be all the more important because of what we talked about earlier, which is that uh, drugs are going to get on the market sooner. And we have evidence, as you've done, you know, numerous studies showing that there are many drugs that just aren't that good. And we find out about how not good they are only after they've been on the market for the while. That's going to continue to happen. And the real question is, what do we do about those cases? And what do we want FDA to be in a position to do and to be willing to do? And I think that right now, um, there is a lot of uh, I guess uh, there's a lot of pressure on FDA to not do that much in yeah. those situations. So I think, you know, your editorial is really marvelous. I think you hit the nail on the head in several ways. Um, uh, when you have an agency, any agency, even the best agency with the best people, you still want public accountability and oversight. Oversight is the hallmark of robust systems. If a, if a system is doing a good job, oversight should not be a threat. It should be, in fact, uh, an opportunity to be validated that you're doing a good job. I see you nodding, so I'm just going to say that. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, because you're right, you're really hitting the nail on the head. Um, by opening up data and allowing access, you allow a lot of people who are independent, who may be interested in this topic, which let's be honest, they're not gonna be a ton of people interested in this topic, but there'll be at least you and I and a few other people interested in this topic. Um, and we'll be able to, and, uh, and others who are interested, take a look to see, is this program fulfilling the stated aims? I think you make an excellent point, which is that, you know, REMS, it, it does one thing for sure, which is it imposes a burden. But the question mark is whether or not that burden leads to better outcomes for people and leads to what we want, which is REMS to be a tool to leverage more safe prescribing of drugs. Um, it is interesting that REMS is, is the exception and not the rule, as you point out. Uh, REMS is for the drugs for which there is the most concern of misuse, of teratogenicity, of potential harm. Um, and, and that's another discussion worth having. Now, the flip side of REMS is by allowing the industry to have so much control over REMS, the FDA may have inadvertently given them an opportunity to maintain market exclusivity. And can you talk a little bit about how REMS is abused, a, a club used to beat down generic manufacturers who seek to enter that market space? Can you talk about that, the flip side, the unintended consequence of REMS? Sure. And this is uh, when we talk about policy, uh, we've got to always be thinking about potential unintended consequences. And here, uh, there's a couple ways in which REMS have really been used as a way to as an anti-competitive tool. So one way is we have these restricted distribution programs, and sometimes it, they're independent of REMS, but I'll talk about them in the context of REMS, um, which is really to sort of say for safety reasons, there's a justification now for saying, we will control the flow of our product through maybe a single specialty pharmacy, which we own. Um, and as a result, I can now uh, monitor the patients and their outcomes, which is uh, perhaps a good thing. But on the flip side, what I can also do is I can exclude samples of that product being sold to uh, potential generic manufacturers who need these samples to conduct the bioequivalence testing to bring a generic product on the market. 
And so you have these cases in which there have been allegations that um, companies, brand name companies, have been using REMS as a tool to prevent these generic companies from getting a hold of these samples. Mm. So without these samples, what it, what happens? They have longer market exclusivity because there's a longer time it's going to take before a generic can finally figure out a way to get enough samples to do the testing necessary. There's also um, uh, been situations in which you have companies, uh, and one classic example is Reckitt when you talk about buprenorphine, where you talk about companies who, under the law, there's a requirement that the REMS be shared mm-hmm. uh, with the generic manufacturer. And so that makes, makes, makes sense. You don't want two distinct safety programs which will be confusing for physicians and patients for the same product. Um, and so uh, what was envisioned under the, uh, the law was that there would be a shared REMS between, be- for the same product. And what has happened is that you've had brand name companies who have delayed, who have purposely sort of dragged their feet in terms of setting up how this shared program will work. So again, without the shared program in place, are you going to get that generic drug to market? Perhaps not. And perhaps in, in another sort of egregious case is you have the actual REMS program themselves. So Celgene has done this for many of their products um, to actually patent their REMS program and then argue that because it's patented, another manufacturer would uh, have to create a separate program and the creation of that separate program would be unsafe for patients. So as a result, they petitioned the FDA not to approve any generic versions of that drug because of safety reasons. So it's it's basically been- um, Hijacked. Hijacked is one, commandeered would, would be one Commandeered, word, <laughs> commandeered, yeah. But, but it's the danger of any policymaking is we need to anticipate what the potential unintended consequences are. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're never going to anticipate all of them. But And that's the other thing with policymaking is it needs to be a continuous process. There needs to be evolution to it. And so what might be good in one era um, over time will require fixes. And we should anticipate because of the way the system is set up and because of the objectives of these companies, this isn't about moral uh, sort of right or wrong. This is ultimately about um, crafting a system that gets you the results you want and recognizing what the players in that system, what their motives are. And the generic and brand name manufacturers, we know what their motives are. When you talk about the brand name manufacturers, if there is a legal way for them to extend their exclusivities, their shareholders are going to demand that actually happen. And so as a public and as a regulatory body, we need to make sure that we are creating solutions to whatever strategies that they come up with. Yeah. You know, that's that's so well said. I, I like to say that, you know, you don't blame a tiger for being a tiger. It's up to you to put him in the right cage, uh, get him to behave the way you want them to behave. But the industry craves profit. That's their that's their duty to shareholders. And they're going to seek every opportunity to, within the limits of the law, take advantage of existing programs. We'll talk a little bit more about orphan drug in a second. But I think we see almost every reform at the FDA level that was done with the purpose of some public good has paradoxically been co-opted to serve the profits of the client, or I mean, the entity that is being regulated. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But let me ask you a question that people talk a lot about. 
the FDA approved 40 plus new drugs last year. Did you know that? I don't know if you've ever heard that because that's a that's a statistic that people don't like to tout too broadly. But no, some people are celebrating. Is the sheer number of drug approvals a measure of a well-functioning regulatory system? Or is there perhaps a way that somebody would get a lot of approvals if they, for instance, removed all standards of efficacy? Wouldn't that lead to a bonanza? Sure. Yeah. So it's a great question. What should our objective measure of success be? And everybody, including the public. So, I mean, this raises the sort of, again, who is the master here? And if uh, oftentimes we're conflating that we, for the industry, having 40 new approved drugs might be great, but for the public, that's not necessarily the case. And what do I mean by that? Well, the public wants scientific discovery and advancement. It wants innovation. And uh, in fact, FDA can help usher that in. But when we use a step measure like number of new drug approvals without regard to um, how much do those drugs actually extend survival, um, how much do those drugs improve quality of life, um, and so with regard to what exists already on the market, then we're really doing ourselves a disservice in sort of uh, patting ourselves on the back and saying 40 drugs is a great thing. Um, we, we really need to be cognizant of you know, what were the approval standards under which these drugs were passed? Did they, did, what were the results of those trials? And, and the bottom line is how much public benefit do those drugs offer? Don't, don't to, the people who tout the number of drug approvals per year, don't they know this? Shouldn't they know this? Why, why do they keep saying that? They say, we probably have so many drugs, they keep celebrating it. Because I think in the public's mind, there is the notion that FDA has these approval standards, and if a drug is approved by default, that it must be good. I see. And uh, yes, the FDA has these approval standards, but as we've sort of talked about a, a couple of times in this session, is those approval standards, regardless of whether or not uh, what certain people say, the empirical data suggests that uh, those standards are lowering over time. And as a result, are those drugs uh, really as good as we say they are uh, or think that they are? And oftentimes that proves not to be the case, and it takes real-world evidence now to show that that is not the case. Um, but by then, it's oftentimes too late. So let's just talk about a cancer drug that is touted as being you know, the next thing in lung cancer. And uh, we find out later that it, it actually doesn't, might improve progression-free survival, but it doesn't improve overall survival. What are the rules now? Well, we know Medicaid has to cover it. We know Medicare has to cover it. We've locked ourselves into a position where we're paying for something that doesn't give us good bang for our buck. And uh, I think there, there's a reason why manufacturers are quite happy to get drug approvals for those, uh, for those types of indications because they know that is the major hurdle to getting reimbursed for them. And so at the end of the day, we need to recalibrate what we consider a measure of success in terms of innovation um, and bringing forth scientific advancement. See, you're, you're, you had a great example, a hypothetical drug that improves PFS, doesn't improve survival, and let's say it doesn't even improve quality of life, and I, and I hate to tell you that you will find there will be thought leaders in oncology who go out there and argue that survival and quality of life are not the metrics by which you should judge that, judge that drug. You should judge it based on the surrogate endpoint, which is really, I think, not, not just factually untrue and kind of crazy. But yet, you know, you hear people say things like this. Let me ask you a related question. 
we have currently lots and lots of candidate compounds and clinical trials. Part of that reason is the fact that the companies know the bar is at the certain height and maybe it's only gonna go a little bit lower, but it's at this height. If we raise the bar, you will stifle innovation. That's the argument. If you raise the bar for approval, this, the, the, the pipeline will go dry. And similarly, if you lower the price of these drugs and you don't guarantee manufacturers tremendous profits, you're going to stifle innovation. What do you say for this argument that the current status quo is the sweet spot for bringing game changers to market and any way that you perturb the status quo, you're going to get us out of the sweet spot? What do you say to that argument? Yeah, so I would say that economists love to discuss what uh, slopes of curves are, and that's something that we don't do when we talk about innovation and uh, this trade-off. So nobody's gonna, nobody, I think, is realistically arguing that uh, difficult policy choices have trade-offs. I think what we fail to discuss is it becomes a game stopper at the get-go to say that there might be some innovation or efficiency trade-off to what we're doing. I think, first of all, there's a lot of uh, glut in the system. So I think that there's a lot to get rid of that isn't necessarily going to impact um, the bottom line state of innovation. So I'd say there's a couple points. One is where are we on this on this curve in terms of what the marginal return would be for a little less price for uh, in terms of that impact on innovation or uh, in terms of when we're talking about drug approval standards, uh, honestly, you could probably, this is one thing I, I, I think that we don't emphasize enough is that by having heightened approval standards, we can actually drive forth meaningful innovation and that that can actually be a tool, not a hindrance for innovation. Uh, and so I would argue those two things. And then, you know, we have to address sort of the elephant in the room. And I understand where uh, a lot of scientists who are working in industry get upset about this notion of where does innovation come from. And uh, the fact of the matter is, do pharmaceutical companies uh, do an important job in the system? Yes. But we need to take a realistic view of the extent of what their contribution is. And when we're talking about some of the most critical breakthroughs in science, and here I'm not just talking about a well into the basic science, I'm talking up to the development of compounds. Um, that that type of innovation, the most transformative drugs over the past 30 years, half of them originate from public sector research institutions. So when we're talking about, and yeah, oftentimes they're academic settings and they turn into spinoffs that are then acquired by you know, larger manufacturers. But when we're talking about sort of is what we're doing from a policy perspective going to stop that sort of innovation going on at that public sector research institutions, probably not. Yes. And and so when you combine all of those together, we need to do a better job of just countering what has historically been the trump card that's being played, which is that anything you do to change the status quo is going to have a catastrophic effect on innovation and is going to mean that tomorrow's cures won't exist. And I think that's a false narrative, and I think it's a very dangerous narrative, and it prevents us from getting uh, a better system that basically provides more and better value for taxpayers at large. See, I'll just point out that that narrative that I hear a lot, and I also agree with you, is a false narrative. 
it is often put forth by economists who are not subject to the Sunshine Rule Disclosure Clause, because if they were, people, I think, would have a different sense of that argument. But I'll say one other thing, uh, because I, I won't force you to comment on that. I'll say, uh, I, I use this analogy to describe drug development. It is definitely hard, and the industry definitely has a hard task. Um, no one's discounting that. But a lot of the difficulty is in finding the target you need to drug. And so I say, drug development is like finding a pearl in the ocean. It's that hard. But the part the NIH does, that's, that's the part of sifting through the ocean to find the target, and then drugging the target is the industry part. So I say, drug development's like finding a pearl in the ocean, but by the time the industry gets the task, it's like finding a pearl in a glass of water. It's still not easy to fish it out, but at least you kind of know where to look. And so high-throughput screening to identify a candidate compound, taking it through toxicology, animal models, phase one, two, three testing, that's not nothing. That's what the industry is doing. But knowing that BTK is an important target in mammalian cells, that's something that came through NIH, you know, knowing that it's an important immunologic target. Um, knowing what the fusion kinases are, knowing what you know, certain mutations are, the pathway, that's done through public work. And we can take a good example. We can take a good example, CAR T cells, which you did a nice little study on. CAR T cells is this product that all of the basic science outlays in the most risky 20 years of R&D were through NIH funding. And then late in what, uh, circa 2012, Novartis bought rights from Penn uh, for something like 20, 30 million dollars uh, and then took it the final step. Undoubtedly, Novartis paid a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars for sure. But the hardest part was the uncertain period of decades of funding, uh, you know, uh, uh, cellular transfer therapies, um, you know, different ways of engineering T cells to attack cancer. That was the hardest part. And, you know, we could talk a little bit about that. But I think um, it, is, it is certainly the case that the most risky portion of drug discovery is trying to figure out the very pathways that exist that you want to perturb. And that is something that is largely done through NIH funding. That doesn't mean the industry doesn't have a hard task. I know they do. But, you know, it's a different task. It's the, it's the last mile. And I think it's important to, for us to have the debate, and I know that there's going to be differences of opinion as to, you know, again, what the unintended consequences might be. But the fact of the matter is, in the CAR-T example, if, if that amount of risk has been assumed by the government and, uh, and it develops into, uh, and I know you don't like the term, but a groundbreaking or breakthrough <laughs> yeah. therapy. Yeah. But, I mean, here you can acknowledge that I think, yeah, I've, People would say it is. I mean, but if it develops into this, what what implication is that going to have in terms of what manufacturers should be able to charge for uh, uh, for that product? And are there fair conditions that we can impose that will still allow uh, room for companies to profit uh, handsomely for the work that they do, but also ensure better access? Uh, and more sort of fiscal stewardship than we have right now because what we have right now is an unsustainable system. I have an idea for you. Okay, so when we talk about health insurance, one option is to have allow people to option to buy into Medicare, a so-called public option. 
Um, if you are a capitalist and you support the industry and you think private insurance is better than Medicare, you should not fear such an option because you're going to crush them in the marketplace. No one would buy into Medicare because Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever your company is, you're doing a better job. So you should not fear that. And so a public option, in fact, increases competition. If you're really doing a better job, you should welcome the competition because you're going to crush the competition, right? Similarly, here's my proposal to you. We invest at a federal level some pot of money into a federally run pharmaceutical company. It's not for everybody. If you're, if you're a drug company and you've done all the preclinical work and you have a candidate compound, you can bring your own product to market. But if you are an NIH-funded laboratory and you've done decades of NIH-funded research, as Carl June did, as Rosenberg did, as uh, you know, uh, 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 Michelle Satterline did, et cetera, et cetera, you, you know, you're one of these groups of people that have tremendous NIH funding for many years. You can voluntarily choose to partner with the federal pharmaceutical company and let them do that last mile. Let them make, you know, cellular facilities, grow it up, do the final thing. And then the federal government can just invest 600 mil and get the product to market. And then they can potentially charge $30,000 for CAR T cells, which is the price of manufacturing per June plus 10 per yeah. yeah. Testing such. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's my proposal. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I think it's a. A very intriguing proposal, and I would say that uh, it, it, there is certain situations where we can even off the bat start testing it where we know that there are compounds and certain indications for which the market isn't going to do that well in terms of there's not a big desire. Let's say antibiotics. antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. let's say antibiotics, yeah. So why don't, why don't we start there and why don't we test this? And I, I think that it, we are in an, in an era now where we're looking for big, bold solutions. And this should be one of them that we should be talking about because, yeah, maybe it's the case that we ultimately find out the government, eh, well, right now we know it needs an infrastructure to be able to do this that it's currently lacking. But if you actually put in the resources to develop this infrastructure, maybe we find this is a far more efficient route and that yes. a lot of the products that develop both intramurally and extramurally from NIH funding, that a certain proportion of those we're going to put through this pathway. And as a result, we're not going to be facing you know, 15 years of market exclusivity where the price is whatever the market will bear, yeah. but we'll have a, a more efficient system. And at the end of drive competition within and make these private pharmaceutical companies more efficient. Um, so talking about these types of bold ideas, I, I don't think that, the, that we need to fear them. I think that we need to really debate and start actually doing some experiments. Yeah. And uh, that would be the best way forward. I think that the, the people who lobby against a public option and the people who will lobby against my proposal, it's not that they're doing that out of uh, a goodness to society, but because they fear that they're going to get their butts kicked by a, a group like this, and they're going to be undercut, and they're going to be—it's going to be harder for them. But as you say, it will force those who survive to be more efficient, which I actually think is good. Um, I actually think that if you're a pro-capitalist person, you will embrace these kinds of ideas. They force the market to be even better. Let me ask you, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about the heretical idea. Why do we even need the FDA at all? 
there are some people out there, I've seen them, they say we can have a Yelp for drugs. That just yeah. like, you, there, there's no FDA for your for the Thai restaurant I ate at last night, or you know, an Indian restaurant you're gonna go to later this week. Uh, there's no FDA regular, you know, there's some basic food standards, but no one's telling you what's a good restaurant, what's a bad restaurant, you know, whether or not it's worth it. Um, why can't we do the same thing for drugs? Just let any company run a phase one trial. As soon as the phase one trial finds the MTD, you can sell the drug at MTD, and you know, you can persuade people um, based, uh, you know, based on your ability to persuade, uh, and, and let people review drugs online. Why isn't that a great idea? Because at the end of the day, so a, a it's it, it's, and we're not just. I think it's important to step back and say, this isn't just an obscure idea from left field. This is an idea that is gaining traction within certain segments of the population. And there's some, maybe something appealing about, you know, we are decision makers, we are sophisticated actors, we should be able to uh, to let the market sort itself out, and we'll find out what's going on. Uh, my big uh, objection with this is that we know what happens, and we would be brought back to the era of snake oil salesmen. Um, at the end of the day, what's going to happen if we do that is that there will be extreme marketing of products that have no real benefit. Um, there will be marketing products that are actually unsafe. And safety is really in the con how you define safety absent some recognition of efficacy is, is difficult for me to fathom because uh, the risk of a product really is in relationship to its efficacy. Um, so I, I'll just put that out there. But we've seen the whole reason we created a system that now requires proof of safety and efficacy is because of the tragedies that occurred over the course of the 20th century. Um, uh, and so uh, learning from those tragedies, whether it be a thalidomide uh, disaster or sulfonyl elixir, um, it really shows us that when we try to do this, because of the sophistication of drugs, that you know our drugs is medicine in some respect unique, that we really need a gatekeeper to assure that there is this baseline efficacy and safety. Part of this is also the fact that we don't as individuals, it's not us who is choosing what drugs to take, it's, it's an intermediary and it's the physician. And that physician is going to be targeted extensively with over $30 billion in, in, in marketing. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is the case that without some independent arbiter sort of saying that we can say that these drugs are safe for these purposes, what we're going to get is a system in which a lot more people are harmed, in which there is a lot more wasted expenditure on drugs that simply don't do much. We'll get, a, so, we'll get an oil out there, like hypothetically, we'll call it Sarepta oil, and it'll get yeah. five out of five stars on Yelp, but it turns out it doesn't do anything, and it's only been tested in an uncontrolled study of, say, 12 to 14 people. But it's got five exactly. stars, it's got good reviews. You know, and conditions that are relapsing, remitting, that are chronically deteriorating, these are conditions for which hope springs eternal in the human breast. And people will always feel as if what they are doing is changing the trajectory of something that's supposed to deteriorate, that's something that's supposed to relapse, remit. And we know the only way you can separate your hope and enthusiasm and all those traits that make human beings, I think, great um, from truth is uh, controlled studies, I think. That's the challenge there. Okay. 
Exactly. And just the fact matter that we know how many drugs fail from phase one through phase three testing shows us that if we had a system in which there wasn't that in the pre-approval phase, nine out of ten of the products that would be marketed would be crap products. Yeah. And, 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 and nine out of ten fail in the current system where the bar is at a certain height. If you put the bar at the height of actually improving outcomes, who knows how much would fail? 99 out of 100. 999 out of 1,000, I suspect. <laughs> Let's talk about Orphan Drug Act, because this is another well-intentioned measure um, that was meant to reform the FDA that has um, been used and perhaps misused. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I finally, for the first time, have understood REMS a little more clearly after your eloquent explanation. Now I want to understand what has long plagued me, Orphan Drug Act. Sure. So, I mean, the Orphan Drug Act was uh, is well-intentioned legislation, but it's over 30 years old. And so now, is it fit for purpose for this era? And that, that is the real essential question. I, w- I will argue that I, I think it actually was, was well-made legislation for the early 1980s. And what is it sort of, what is the Orphan Drug Act? Well, we know that we have sort of market failure in terms, not market failure, but just in, uh, we have reluctance, reduced, yeah, yeah a, a reluctance, reduced appeal of manufacturers to make drugs for rare diseases or conditions. Um, and so what do we do to incentivize from, from an equitable principle? We want research done, being done on these conditions. Um, and so what can we do to, 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 uh, to get companies and manufacturers interested in these conditions, and so what the rare what the Orphan Drug Act did is it proposed a, a series of incentives, and it said, look, we're going to say that you can get seven years of market exclusivity for the indication. I think a lot of people misconstrue that as being a blanket uh, exclusivity, but seven years of market exclusivity for that rare disease indication. If you bring a, a drug to market for a rare disease drug. We're going to give you tax credits. They used to be up until 2017, 50% of of, of uh, a tax credit for research and development costs in bringing the drug to market. And there was a pot of money, which isn't admittedly that large, but perhaps at the time was more meaningful, but still is meaningful for smart biotechs in terms of grant funding that could be used to support research into rare diseases. And now, rare is defined is as prevalence of... Rare is defined as prevalence ah. less than. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. And now you're now you're hitting hitting yeah. uh, the sort of uh, million dollar question is, at the time when the Orphan Drug Act was first passed, there was no prevalence condition. It was defined as drugs for which there was no reasonable expectation of profit. A year later, nice and vague, nice yeah, and I, vague. But a year later. And perhaps because of that, well, we'll argue whether or not we think that that vague standard actually might be better. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. But but, um, a year later, for the same reasons, but probably more so because of a uh, reluctance to open books and show numbers and sales and things like that, uh, manufacturers were successful in getting Congress to amend the Orphan Drug Act to create this prevalence standard. So what is a rare disease drug now? Uh, well, ever since 1984, it is a condition, uh, or rare disease is a, is, a, is a condition that affects less than 200,000 people in the U.S. population. Um, 
and if it's above 200,000 people, uh, uh, it is a condition for which there is no uh, reasonable, uh, for which drugs for which would, would have no reasonable expectation of a profit. Now, what has changed in the 30 years since and now? Well, we've got a fundamentally altered market. So the first thing is now, what is the sort of uh, cost, median cost of a top-selling orphan versus non-orphan drug? Well, it's about $145,000 versus $35,000 per year. So we've got a huge cost of orphan drugs. Um, as a result, it is possible for some manufacturers to earn hundreds of millions of dollars from the rare disease indication itself. Um, that's one thing that's fundamentally changed. In the 35 uh, years since the Orphan Drug Act has passed, there have been major changes in, in the market. And the first thing to, to sort of recognize is that there is a lot more orphan drugs on the market, what we'll call orphan drugs. Um, so there's a lot more drugs for rare diseases. If we were to look from 1985 to 1984, 16% of new drugs were drugs that had a rare disease as an indication. If we were to look at 2005 to 2014, that's 25%. And if we were to look just last year, almost 50% of all new drugs had an orphan drug indication. So it's working. So it's all, working. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. okay, yeah. <laughs> So, so that's exactly what's, what a lot of people say is it's working. It's working. But first of all, our question is, do we want 50% of the drugs that we make to be for rare diseases? Uh, well, there's equitable reasons why we want to focus on rare diseases and make sure that people aren't left behind. But at the same time, we want to prioritize uh, and make sure we're not also leaving behind drugs uh, for conditions that affect uh, most of the population. And so when you're talking particularly central nervous system uh, drugs, Alzheimer's uh, drugs, um, we, we need to make sure that there's a healthy pipeline for those drugs. So there's some concern that maybe the skew has been out of sorts, and maybe it's the Orphan Drug Act that's driving all of this. But there's other changes in the marketplace that we need to be aware of, too. And one of them is this idea that what you can charge for an orphan drug is... Uh, Anything you is, want. It, Anything you exactly. want. And so we are getting $400,000, $800,000 orphan drugs. And this is going to be a sign of things to come. But basically what's happened is even though the market might be considerably small, there is certain conditions that are rare diseases for which you can still generate hundreds of millions of dollars even for that rare disease just because of the price premium that you can charge. Billions even, yeah. yeah. Billions, yeah. Is, yeah. And so that's one change. Now, we also need to be aware of possible gaming of the Orphan Drug Act. So what do I mean by that? Well, the way it's constructed is you still get your benefits. The whole purpose of this is to get drugs to market that otherwise wouldn't get to market, right? Yes. And so what was happening now is you're getting these orphan drugs that are coming in with a rare disease indication but are then getting two, three, four or more indications as well. And a lot of times those other indications may not even be rare disease indications. So do we want to give, would those drugs otherwise come to market 
Possibly. And do we want to expend scarce resources for those drugs? So just to give you one statistic, between 1983 and 2016, 22% of drugs with rare disease indications also had a non-rare disease indication. Let me ask you one question about this. So let's say yeah. I get a drug to market for a rare familial cholesterol disorder, but I also get it to for anyone with high cholesterol. Okay, so I got this huge market share on one hand, this orphan drug on the other hand. The orphan drug credits I get, that 50% R&D credit, does that apply just to the R&D for the orphan drug approval or for all of the R&D? Um, you know, and, and those kinds of, how, does the credit extend beyond the orphan drug indication? The exclusivity does, doesn't it? It's just for that indication, but, and so this is the other sort of thing is we need to be careful about uh, what we think about all of these multiple indications. It's not as bad as I think some people make it out to be because the tax credit in theory is only for that indication. Not only that, the exclusivity is also only for that indication. Okay, good. But essentially, so so those are two big points. And that also sort of raises the question of what's really driving all of this focus on rare diseases by manufacturers. Is it really the Orphan Drug Act? Uh, my answer to that question is we've done some studies that have taken a look at sort of how the Orphan Drug Act exclusivity, that seven-year exclusivity patents. And we found that the patent term, even if you restrict it to just those strong patents that cover the actual active ingredient, parent product, compound, yes, that those patents are increasingly over time outlasting the orphan drug exclusivity. I see. So it's a, moot, it's a moot point. That, yes, it's a moot point increasingly. Potentially. And so what we really need to do is we know there's this issue and this skew of this market in terms of focus on rare diseases. So what's actually going on? Well, I would say what's going on is the fact that we have this price premium you can charge for these rare diseases. That's one thing that's going on. The second thing that a lot of people don't talk about is the fact that getting an orphan drug to market is far easier than getting a non-orphan drug to market. And that's because although the FDA says there are uniform approval standards, those uniform approval standards are context-based. And so we can debate whether or not they're uniform oh, yeah. approval standards. Yeah, but they're flexible. <laughs> and and if it's a rare disease, then obviously if it's less than 200,000, you can never randomize anyone to that because as we all know, all randomized trials are over 200,000 participants. Uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So get a those types of arguments bear fruit and it results in a shorter time span in getting these drugs to market. And then the fact that you have a sort of guarantee because of insurance pressure that to cover. Uh, public pressure on insurance companies that they're going to cover that. So you that's one of the major reasons, I, I would say, is this fact of what it takes to bring that drug to market. And then the second reason is the price premium you can charge. That's not to say that there's not gaming going on that you can fix. So one of the issues Wait, is, but let me ask one question. Most, what about the priority yeah. review voucher? When yeah. do they get the priority review voucher? You, you can get a... So... So sorry, uh, let's back up for one second. So uh, let's just say it's a neglected tropical disease, a rare or rare pediatric disease. You can you're saying getting the additional priority review voucher for that? Yeah, yeah. So that obviously, but that's is that's only a subset of orphan drug diseases. So they get the priority. Exactly. I see. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So we can talk about what you do there, but th that is an additional incentive. incentive yeah. that we can say it may or may not be warranted, but maybe we need to close the the loopholes in that program as well. But the fact of the matter is what gaming is – so 
what's so bottom yeah line, what's, what's driving it I, yeah what's yeah. driving it is our first question yeah. second question is there ways in which the program is being exploited or gamed i would argue yes because in those cases where you are coming down in, in these uh with a narrow indication to begin with and then getting broader indications there's really not the need to get those incentives for that for that narrow indication. And we can argue, even in the case where, let's say, you start big and then get a supplemental narrow indication, what is the appropriate incentive that you need to do those? And this is a general problem with drug policy as a whole, I think. And this raises a bigger picture, not just the Orphan Drug Act, but we are oftentimes as policymakers, and it's understandable as politicians, the incentives that politicians want to give are those that don't show up on a ledger seat. But oftentimes those incentives cost society far more wow, than well put. something like a prize would, uh, some or are just funding money up, but putting up funds up front would. And the reason is because we, what is our go-to? It's some form of market exclusivity is usually our go-to. And that means that you don't have to say in your budget that you are putting up certain money for this, but what that's guaranteeing is your payers, Medicare and Medicaid, or for the long term, going to be paying a price premium on these products that really they shouldn't have to be. And if you were to restructure the system so that it would be more palatable for politicians to actually say, let's fund this because in the long run, we will save money by doing it this way. Uh, we would have a much better system, but we don't have that type of system. So and just politics to be... is not about the long run. Yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, what you're what you're arguing is that if I give you one year of market exclusivity, it sounds like I'm giving you something that's not costing me money as the government, but it might be costing me as much as a hundred million to a billion dollars in extra payments on the back end of that exclusivity, that I'm going to be paying billion dollars more for that one year. For five years, for seven years exclusivity, I might be paying $10 billion. I mean, it could be that high. So it's a prize for which the, the public doesn't see the amount, the, the, the government bureaucrats don't see the amount, the politicians don't see the amount, but the company is smart enough to calculate the amount and can act accordingly. You nailed it. And within the portal group, we've done a couple studies that have taken a look at the windfall that manufacturers get based on these incentive programs. And generally speaking, the incentive program offer what they get back in return. And so I, I think we've got a general problem in terms of how we choose to incentivize within the pharmaceutical system and that we need to do uh, shy away from, uh, from this focus on exclusivity. But the bottom line with the Orphan Drug Act is there is the, the situations in which you are giving away scarce resources that should be for rare diseases to drugs that don't necessarily need them. And so uh, that is particularly going to be more the case as we enter more in the era of precision medicine. So um, a lot of these drugs now that are, that are getting orphan drug designation, particularly in the cancer space, are biomarker-defined subsets uh, of more common diseases. And so in those situations, we know that there's going to be probably pretty good deal of off-label prescribing. Uh, and we also know that there's going to be, at some point, probably because of the pathophysiology of disease, other conditions. So if you have a get a lung cancer, maybe uh, that yeah. same biomarker is present in, in a different cancer. Sarcoma, and so, maybe. And maybe you can get the NCCN to endorse it for off-label use. <laughs> and they don't need much. Just a few uncontrolled case series. 
But you know, I do think you're onto something, which is that you're asking this really good question, which is like, why are they so interested in this when if the patents are longer than the exclusivity, they're not gaining that way. The tax credit may be modest. It may only apply to this one small indication. Um, what really drives them? And I think you're probably right that it's two things. One, the bar for approval is really, really low. When you don't need a contemporary control arm, then a lot of things, you know, we have empirical data that shows many, many things look wonderful without a contemporary control arm. You add the control arm, it doesn't look so great anymore. And that's what they're getting. So they're getting a foothold in the market. And once they get a foothold in any indication, they can sell their drug for any other indication if they can convince some quote unquote expert or leader to recommend it for that other indication. And there's one tail end also argument that fits in exactly to what you've just said is that orphan drugs, unlike other drugs, there is generally less uh, less desire for generic companies to get in in that game. And so effectively, the de facto exclusivity that you have, it could be lifelong um, ah. uh, because there's just your where generic drugs make their money is on volume. And these are low volume niches within the pharmaceutical marketplace. And so another reason is you're not going to get just the 10 years of market exclusivity someone will get. You you might even get 20 years of market exclusivity. And if that's the case, at that price premium that you're getting, maybe everything works out to be a, a good in your bottom line. And so what do we, I guess now the question is, now we know all of this, what do we, what do we really do? I think one, we need to be careful about the notion of how much exclusivity is doing, both for the reason of this de facto exclusivity, um, but also for the fact of the patent term. And so maybe reforming the, ex, the orphan drug exclusivity is not going to be our best bet in terms of driving a fix. Maybe we should have, if we're worried about these scarce, scarce resources being uh, wasted on drugs that don't need them, maybe we should conceptualize the orphan drug incentive program as a minimum guarantee. And if you do well enough, you got to pay back that minimum guarantee. Mm. Maybe because of the fact that we know that these price premiums are so bad, maybe for the Orphan Drug Act, one of the things we get, in addition to the incentives we give, we make it conditional on some value-based pricing. Um, God forbid we do something like that. Um, but I, I think there are ways in which we can re, uh, recalibrate the system so the, the focus on rare diseases isn't as skewed as it currently is, um, while still making sure that we are, uh, uh, from an ethics perspective, uh, really not leaving people behind and still doing meaningful work on studying rare diseases and bringing forth products in rare diseases. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to we need to recreate a pharmaceutical system in which there is more risk taking for drugs that will have a bottom line bigger effect on population health than we currently do. Yeah, I guess um, I agree with everything you've said. And I would echo one thing, which is that and we wrote about this a few years ago, a paper on rare disease in the European Journal of Cancer, which is that if you're an advocate for a group with a rare disease, I know your first glance, you may think the best advocate is the person who says we need the lowest regulatory bar to get something approved so that we have something in the rare disease. And we argued that actually, if you're that kind of advocate, you're doing your disease a disservice for a few reasons. One, even in diseases that are really, really rare, we picked the example of adrenal cortical cancer, which has an incidence of 0.7 per 1 million. 
we have large-scale randomized trials of 400 participants that show survival benefits that are published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so we say, so we've proven that if you're ultra rare, we can still randomize. What's the barrier to randomization? It's actually not the frequency of the tumor. It's the ability for people who take care of that disease to collaborate. And there are lots of professional incentives not to collaborate because if I collaborate yes. with you on a randomized trial, only one of us will be first author. But if I do my own study of 10 people and you do your own study, we both got a first author paper. That's a very perverse, I think, academic incentive that pre prevents collaboration. And so then we point out that the other thing is randomized trials often show you things you didn't guess. And so if you're an advocate for your rare disease community and you are almost invariably an order of magnitude more common than adrenal cortical cancer, because I'll tell you, you probably are because that's really, really rare. The best thing you can do is advocate for collaboration to run the right yep. studies to get the right evidence for your disease because that's what's best for people with that disease. So I think it's actually, it, it, it's so easy to fall into the seduction that we've approved a lot of drugs, therefore we're doing a good job. We have something, therefore we are a good advocate. It's a lot harder to say, do I really know that what I have actually helps people like me? And like you said, I think that's very well stated. I think that can we make things better is oftentimes uh, not the question we ask. The question we sort of, we leave ourselves with the statement that if we yes. did this, it would not be possible. And so I think that we have a lot more room for creativity in terms of how we foster collaboration in the rare disease drug space. But the bottom line is the things that we think are so hard in terms of generating good evidence are things that we can do and things that are probably going to be the most meaningful thing that we can do in terms of uh, benefiting yeah. that particular group of patients. And so, like you said, if, if you're an advocate, it's really that recognition that lowering the bar might get more products to market, but those products not, are not necessarily going to be good products. Why not far better to invest in funding that'll create good evidence to make sure that those products that come yeah, to it market- It actually blows my mind um, when people say, you know, it's impossible. Uh, it, it, it blows my mind what people are willing to have credulity for. So for instance, a 20-year-old college dropout dresses like Steve Jobs and says, I can, with one pinprick of blood, run all these tests that every single pathologist and lab tech person says is impossible to run. I have a machine that does it. You can never look at it and you can never do it, test it yourself. This person is taken seriously for a decade. But somebody who says, we should create an infrastructure where we can run randomized trials. We know we can do it because we've done it before in some types, disease types. We could expand that to other diseases types and get some credible evidence that's declared as impossible. So I think it's just so interesting what is possible or not. Okay, here's my last pitch to you. You tell me what you think. This is, we're so far in the podcast, no one's going to be listening. No, I think there'll be a few devout fans, so I'm willing to share my, my idea. <laughs> Okay, so I pitched you my first idea, which is the um, public pharmaceutical company, and you didn't you didn't laugh at me, so I'm 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 happy about that. In the current system, if I'm a drug company and I make a new drug for heart failure, I run my pivotal clinical trial after talking to the FDA, and they say, "Hey, you should do X, Y, and Z," and I say, "Yeah, I'll do X and Y, but Z, yeah, I don't want to do Z, but you know, I'll get close enough so you 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 know, I'll get I'll get you close to what you want, and maybe not all of what you want." And then I run my trial, I collect my data, 
I analyze my data, I submit my data, you get to audit my data a little bit, but you don't get to reevaluate my control arm. You know, you can't change this sort of hardwired trial design. I've picked my control arm, I've picked my endpoints, you know, I've picked my censoring. You know, you have to take it or leave it. I put you in that position, you decide. And then I give you my trial information with a 2.6 something like that million dollar user fee so you can consider my drug application because I'm your, you know, okay, so here's my alternative. Yeah. I'm the drug company. I have preclinical promise that my drug helps heart failure patients. I could combine my drug with the maximum dose ARB and test it against an ACE, but that would be a very foolish thing to do because that's not a good comparison. That's what I would do because it would favor my drug. But in my world, the drug company has the same drug with promise and heart failure. Instead of going to the FDA with the trial that's already been done with whatever control arm they deemed appropriate that they can twist the arm of the FDA to either, you know, you have to make a decision. In my world, they go to the FDA instead of 2.6 million with 26.6 million. And the FDA has, it designs and conducts the clinical trial. The, and and so, so you'll be like, okay, so maybe this is crazy. The FDA contracts with the CROs. The FDA decides the control arm. The FDA decides the population. An impartial group runs the trial. The moment the DSMB stops the trial, says this is a positive trial, the FDA, boom, they can approve the drug that day. It's speeding drugs to market because they've already vetted the design on the back end. So in other words, why do we allow the company who has a $10 billion incentive to get a desired result, to choose the drug dosing, the control arm, the population studied, the comparator group, dose modification schema, what drugs are prohibited. They give them all the control to run the race and evaluate the race. That should all be on a third party that doesn't have skin in the game, that can impartially ask, does this drug improve outcomes when added to the arsenal of drugs we already have? Okay, so that's my idea. What do you think? I think it would be a great system. I think that we're going to struggle to get there from a political reality perspective. So we started from a system in which you know manufacturers had free reign and basically yes. did nothing. Then they had to show safety. And then finally yes. we did some proof of safety and efficacy. Um, so they're going to resist to, to no end. Um, but ultimately, this is a, your type of system is one that is going to get us desired information that we yes. currently lack and sometimes never get. And not having that information is ultimately a disservice to patients. And ultimately, at the end of the day, by having that information, that's it is critically not to say that companies can't benefit. In fact, the companies that will yes. benefit are the drugs that really do something uh, terrific rather than those products in which you can market because of whatever uh, rules of coverage that exist, but that you can market effectively and uh, maybe it's just a me too drug that you can get physicians to prescribe. So would that be a far more rational system? Yes. Um, and in fact, it would capitalize on the existing resources that we have more, more efficiently. Um, is, is it going to happen? Um, I think, sadly, until uh, unless the whole system collapses and we can rebuild it. Um, well, I, I haven't made my announcement for 2020 yet, but let me tell you, in the, um, in the long run of history, I view regulatory <laughs> science in this way. You said it yourself. Early 1900s, we had safety. Kiefer Harris, we had, we had some measure of efficacy. The next step will be comparative efficacy because only someone who's blind would look at the situation we have with PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies, 20, 30 different 
different candidate compounds being tested in redundant duplicative trials. Somebody has to streamline this. This is, makes no sense at all. Okay, so comparative efficacy will be the next regulatory power. And then the next regulatory power is impartiality. That the group that, that generates evidence has to have impartiality from what the evidence shows. That is the natural progression of logical regulation. And it it is alone, I think, morally and practically justified when you have a nation dropping $1 trillion on healthcare per annum, much of which we don't even know if it's generating societal benefit. Um, you know, I think that we have an obligation to patients and to the public and also to all the people who pay for the system um, to make sure that tax money is used that in a way that actually improves the public good. And for many drugs, I fear the only people we are helping are the shareholders. And you worry that you are really giving an ineffective drug to a group of people who are highly vulnerable um, and in no position to demand better evidence because they need a regulatory system to do so. I agree entirely, and I think that's very well. Again, it's excellently stated, and I am, I am, admiring of your <laughs> optimism in the teleology of the way that regulation works. I view it more as a, uh, as a pendulum in which we, we hopefully the the backs the the backswing of the pendulum, um, and the <laughs> forward swing. Hopefully, each time it swings a little bit more forward, it goes a little bit further. But uh, I, I think that we do sometimes, unfortunately, take steps backward because we fail to uh, draw the lessons of history. And uh, I'm hopeful that your view of what happens is, is what prevails. Uh, thank you. Well, I guess I would say I believe we're in a backswing right now, and the last decade or so has been in a backswing. And the backswing has had some advantages. I don't want to say there's no advantages. The advantages yeah. are if you wanted to enter the drug development space, you are much more likely to make money than you otherwise would. And that is an advantage that a lot of people feel. It has fueled the hiring of people in real jobs, making real money. And it's given people a vocation. It's given people entrepreneurial aspirations these you know but the downside of that is we are tolerating so much uncertainty and the people tolerating that day in and day out are very very sick people vulnerable people and they are the ones bearing the price and society is paying and it's it's so tough in these regulatory systems i think you know people will listen to this podcast i think what makes this so tough is that um it's very difficult to understand the intricacies of all these policy measures they are no offense, often boring. It's very boring to listen to some of this stuff, and I'm in the field, but you know, not, no, you're not boring, but I'm saying that, you know, when you read these papers, some are boring. And if you are the average person in the public, it's hard to get, you know, very interested in this. The people who are most interested in this topic are people who are profiting from this field. And so a small, powerful, motivated minority can always exert dominance over a disinterested majority. But the purpose of regulation is that we, as a society, try to create structures that prevent this from happening. I think it's been hijacked to some degree, especially the last decade. I think the pendulum will swing, as you say. I think the reason pendulum always eventually inches forward is that progress in this field is undeniable. No one wants to go back to 1950, although there's a few, unfortunately, before the current president, they were never floated as names for the commissioner, but there are a few who want to go back. But most people want to go forward and improve things. So I, th I, you know, I thank you for your work. I think it is tough to do what you do, which is that you really are, I think, fair and balanced and um, impartial, and you're doing... I think policing um, that is in the public interest uh, that 
probably doesn't earn you friends in all quarters, and you're doing it in a way that you try to keep people on at the table uh, in a very, I think, polite and constructive way, trying to bring people together. Um, uh, you, you guys are, are tops in civility. Uh, you know, you're doing it in a very civil way, and you're trying to make change um, from, from in that process. So I give you a lot of credit. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I hope you come back again and explain us some more of these concepts. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on. I feel like I have a better handle on REMS. I have a better handle on orphan drug. And I think I have a little bit of a better sort of view of, you know, what you think a good regulatory system should do. But I want to end by giving you the last word. What, you know, if you want listeners to go out there, if they should read a few of your articles, where would you start them off with? If there's a book, you know, that you think is important. I just got the email that module three is now available. So we can talk (laughs) about that. What is module three? Um, But, you know, where can people take the next step to try to at least get enough vocabulary that they can participate in these discussions? So first, I just want to say what a pleasure it is uh, to be beyond this, and I'd, I'd love to be on in the future, but I, I particularly appreciate what you do because I think that, uh, y- you know, y- you do good research, obviously, you, you do good clinical care, but there's something special about being a skeptic in this field and translating that skepticism um, and passion for what you see um, in a way that reaches a wider audience. Like you said, regulatory policy can be quite cut and dry. Uh, <laughs> not cut and dry, it can be quite dry. Um, and uh, what really is it going to take? The people who are interested, the people who are bottom line is most affected, and uh, that is the, the, the industry. And to get others and the wider public to be interested really takes com- compelling storytelling. It takes distilling of ideas in a way that, that really people can understand in their daily lives. And uh, it, it takes a certain amount of enthusiasm as well. And I think you, you have that and that that is doing a great service in terms of hopefully bringing that pendulum back to where I, I think we both feel like it should be from a regulatory science perspective in the, in the pharmaceutical space. So we at Portal, we're always engaged in this type of research. And one of the things we're trying to do more of is that translation bit. And um, you can definitely find and read a lot of our policy work online. Anytime you come across an article, if you actually can't get a copy because it's beyond a firewall or something, just shoot me an email. I'm happy to, to send stuff to you. But again, that's written largely for medical lay audiences, policy people. There's blogs and things like that that we write. Um, but I would also say that one of the key things that we've done over the past two years um, is to develop what we call a, a MOOC, a massive open online course, which you can still sign up for. There's currently about 4,500 people signed up for this launch of the FDA and prescription drugs, current controversies and context. Um, And this covers issues such as the history of the FDA, drug development and approval, drug pricing, drug marketing, post-approval drug safety surveillance, and other current hot topics such as um, issues related to stem cell therapy and biologics. Um, And what we really try to do here is to give a lay of the land or what the relevant issues are and how they affect relevant stakeholders um, to try to get the public more invested in these particular issues and to be able for them to take an an educated position on where they stand on certain issues. And so you can sign up for this course online if you 
you just Google it or go to Harvard X, you can get access to it. It's free. Um, and um, we hope you enjoy it because there's a great cast of supporting characters and guests. Um, and in general, I think at the end of the day, uh, we need more people in this space. So if you're a student who's listening to this podcast and you feel like health policy and pharmaceutical policy is something you want to study, uh, we can use as many good hands and brains as possible and that there will be a continued need to study these matters and there is a dramatic impact that you can have, particularly if you're a clinician and thinking about your research. This is an area of research where you can affect literally hundreds and thousands of lives. And so hopefully you'll tune into the rest of the nice sessions and, and also hear him out in terms of his perspectives on policy because I think he brings uh, a healthy dose of skepticism and truth. So it's, it's called The FDA and Prescription Drugs. And it's, uh, is it going to be a six-part series in total? How many parts? It is, it's a six-part series in total, and again, if you sign up now, you can. Um, we're releasing one session a week. Right now, we're on week three, but you can go back and catch the old ones, and the advantage of getting on board now is for each of these new sessions that come out, there's a lot of direct interaction with other en enrollees um, and some certain staff who are also helping out. So it'll be the maximum amount of direct interaction you can get, and I highly encourage you to do so. And I know um, all the smart students who go into healthcare, um, they so easily see mentors in the basic sciences in running clinical trials. They, they less often see mentors who do policy work. And I think that might be part of the reason why, you know, we're not, we don't always see as many of them as, as other groups may see. But I think over time, and I didn't start with an interest in policy. I came to policy on the back end. I started with clinical questions and wanted the answer and how we cover things and I just sort of follow where the questions go. And if you follow where, if you follow your patients and you follow where the questions go, I think it always comes back to policy. Because unlike biology, which is to a large degree outside of our control, and, and we're still learning and scratching the surface of, which is a wonderful thing to do. But unlike that, policy is entirely human made. It's made by us. It can be changed by us. It has been built by us. It is an artifact of our collective choices. And insofar as it is suboptimal, I think we have a duty to fix it. And that's why I think groups like Portal, I think um, many other groups that are focused on policy are doing very, very important work because this is something that if we sat down tomorrow and wanted to change, we could change. Uh, it doesn't elude us the way so much of biology yet eludes us. It's within our power to fix. So thank you, Amit, for your hard work. I encourage um, listeners to check out this educational session. And thanks for coming on the podcast. And the next time, no, I can't say the next time you publish in a top journal because that's just too often these days. So I got to say the next time uh, you know, you come out with a series of articles on different topics. We'll have you back on and you take us through the thinking behind those things because we really enjoyed it. So thanks, Amit. My pleasure. Have a good one. You too. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. 
We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>